Your record in MMA definitely doesn't mean as much as in a sport like boxing, where being undefeated is like the primary goal, where one loss can be treated like the end of your career. Boxing also has this habit of really padding fighters' records, putting them up against journeymen and guys they can beat, and in MMA, that doesn't really happen. After a few good wins, you're usually going to fight someone with the same record as you, and someone's always going to have to go. Continuing to fight those guys who aren't as experienced or on the same level of you in MMA is known as can crushing. There's guys who have earned world title shots by almost entirely beating up fighters who are making their pro debuts and there's guys at the top of the sport who spent most of their career beating up people that just weren't on their level before taking that next step against elite competition. I'm Bailey and from MMA On Point, let me just say thank you to all our Hall of Fame members for supporting MMA On Point content and these are MMA's 10 biggest can crushers. Number 10, Jordan Wright. The Beverly Hills Ninja! I've never been to Beverly Hills, but I wasn't even aware they had ninjas. I am Haru. More specifically, at least there's this one guy, Jordan Wright, who honestly, he fought more like a Power Ranger than a ninja. technique, there it is. Whoa. You might know Jordan because he did actually make it on the Contender Series and into the UFC, but on his way to the Octagon, his entire pro career was full of complete tomato cans. None of his first six opponents had earned a win in professional MMA. Oh, look at that record, only six wins compared to 53 defeats. That's the most amazing statistic I think I've ever seen in my mixed martial arts career and or any job title I've ever had. And when he was 7-0, he fought a guy that was just 1-2. and two. Not surprisingly, he had all first-round finishes, and that pretty much propelled him forward faster than most people. He then got called up to the LFA, where he did manage to beat Craig Wilkerson after taking his back and choking him out early. Craig was 7-3, and three, so that's a fairly decent opponent right there. And that got him a contender shot. And the results are in. See, those people are nothing but a bunch of crooks. After just one more LFA fight, he then got a call to the UFC, and his debut was against 17-10 and 10 Ike Villanueva. But even that fight ended because of a cut, and when it came to fighting actual now UFC-level competition, he ended up going 1-5 and five and was eventually cut from the promotion. Number 9, Michael Venom Page. I personally love a bit of MVP, and he's one of the guys on this list that didn't actually have an easy early career. Venom fought against some tough guys coming up. At 2-0, he fought the 6-0 Hathayim El Saeed, but actually turned out that guy was a can crusher as well. Excellent footwork, being elusive. Oh! But he joined Bellator pretty early on in his career, and then he fought some other up-and-comers. After five wins, he started taking on veterans, guys like the 21-17 and 17 Cyborg Santos and the 25-13 and 13 Fernando Gonzalez. But after beating them, Page was 12-0, had been in Bellator for three years now, and mainly because of how viral he was going, knocking everybody out, you know, people thought he was clearly very good, and they started calling for him to take on bigger competition. But it wasn't until three years later that MVP actually started doing that. He fought Paul Daly, and he wrestled the fun out of him basically and then he took a real step up against Douglas Lima and was unfortunately finished in the second round now that was during the welterweight tournament and Lima went on to win the whole thing so it was kind of like a title shot for him there but after that Mike kind of went back to fighting guys who just weren't really on his level like the three and one Richard Keeley who he just fly and need in three minutes and then other guys who well, some of them had decent records, but it wasn't the top weights he should have been competing against. He was in Bellator for nine years and got 17 wins and only one loss before he got a shot at the title. What was he doing the rest of the time? Basically, just knocking people out. You can't believe what you just saw. You just saw Michael Venom Page. Beautiful shots. 
Number eight, Antonio McKee. In the early 2000s, there were a couple of guys who were winning fights in promotions sort of all over the world, but never really made their way into the big shows. The dad of the Bellator champ, Anthony McKee, was one of those guys. Between 2003 and 2010, he went on a 14 fight on beaten streak across America and the regional scene. Lots of people were calling for him to be brought into the UFC, but when you look at some of the people he beat, you can see why they may have been reluctant. At 10 and 2, he beat the 2 and 0 Heath Sims. At 12 and 3, he beat a guy making his pro debut. I mean, you can look through his record. I mean, he beat a 2 and 1 Mike Dolce when he was 19 and 3, for goodness sake. Eventually, Antonio got his chance in the UFC against an 11 and 2 Jacob Volkman, who'd been fighting tough guys, and McKee lost a pretty boring split decision. He was not invited back. So he went back to the regional scene and started fighting unknown guys again until he was invited to Dream to fight Shinya. But Aoki finished him in the second round. Sometimes honesty may not always be the best policy. Let's like look here. A blind shot by Aoki that catches McKee right on over the right eye. And he's already trying to tap. Although McKee got plenty of wins crushing cans, basically any time he went to a big promotion against decent opponents, he just couldn't get it done. Number seven, Miguel Torres. At one point in time, Miguel Torres was being called the greatest fighter of all time by Frank Mir. Miguel Torres, what can I say? I feel that he is the best fighter in the world, pound for pound. And the thing is, at least on paper, I mean, it didn't seem 100% crazy. The guy was 37 and 1. Okay, that's an amazing record. And apparently, he had a bunch of other fights in unknown promotions as well. He had a real sort of underground vibe. But the problem with that is, you're either going to be fighting a lot of dudes just walking in off the street, or maybe even sinking beers at the bar. And one look at Miguel's record will tell you he beat up way too many weekend warriors than he should have. Hey, man, there's a warrior. If you look at his record on Topology, which is probably the best site for MMA records, 10 of his first 18 opponents say NA, which means they literally don't have records and this is pro level okay neither do any of the promotions they fought them in after that it doesn't really get any better until he got to world extreme cage fighting look there's no denying that torres was a highly skilled fighter and definitely very capable and he had some great wins in the wec but he wasn't this unbeatable guy he was supposed to be and i'm sorry frank he just wasn't one of the goats he ended up losing to brian bowles joseph benavidez demetrius johnson michael mcdonald and marlon Moraes. There's no shame in losing to the best, but when you look at the details of his pro record, it's understandable why people like Frank may have overestimated his abilities. Number six, Julio Cesar. Now, Miguel Torres isn't the only guy on this list with a massive, somewhat questionable record. The only difference is, well, Julio Cesar, who kind of started out on the Brazilian regional scene, had 24 pro fights before he fought for any kind of promotion that was actually properly monitored on Tapology. The hell are regionals? They never stop talking about it. He was an expert can crusher, and he finished his career at 37 and 1 with style okay but yeah if you go for his record you'll see him fight an 0 and 2 guy when he was 14 and 0 you know at 18 and 0 he fought a dude that was just 1 and 2 most of these were first round finishes by the way and it's not exactly hard to see why I mean, when he finally went to a proper Brazilian promotion, the Watch Out Combat Show, they gave him a guy who was 0-1. Julio was 24-0, and he absolutely destroyed him. Even when he went to Bellator, the first two opponents, they barely had winning records. And finally, at the pristine number of 30-0, he fought Jordan Parsons, and he was choked out in the third round. After that, he went right back to fighting less experienced guys, and I guess 37-1 sounds pretty cool, as long as you don't actually look at his opponents. Number five, Jason Reinhardt. I'm going to be honest, I think MMA probably seemed all a bit too easy for Jason Reinhardt. After just one amateur fight, he was already going pro, and then the next seven years, he went undefeated. Oh, he's got it. Back looking for hooks, he's already got the neck. Now he's just trying to seal the deal. 
In fact, he got to 17-0. What a record, mate. I mean, that's basically the same as Justin Gaethje. Turns out, though, fighting on the Illinois regional scene has its perks. Mainly, apparently, there isn't any real competition to fight because out of those 17 opponents, Jason only fought four guys who actually had a win on their record. Tap, tap. I think we have a tap out. He, he sunk it in. Yeah, I know. It sounds bad. That's because it was. He was fighting taxi drivers, carpet cleaners, CM Punk's dad, probably. His last three fights before he joined the UFC were against guys who don't even have tapology records. Who are you? The CIA? NSA? Your military? He showed up in the UFC, 18-0, an undefeated prospect, but guess what? He was given Joe Lozon, who dismantled him in just over one minute. I'm sorry, Jason, but that's not exactly surprising. Two more regional wins against a guy who was 2-10, and 10, and then another dude making his pro debut, and somehow we got back in the UFC, where he was finished twice more and probably quite sensibly retired. Only so many cans you can crush, eh? Number four, Dan Seven. Now let me start this entry by saying the beast, okay, big boy Danny Seven, he was legit as it came back in the day. He smashed through everyone at UFC 5, and then with the magical powers of wrestling, he also became the super fight champion at UFC 9. But, and it's a big old but, when you end your career with a record of 101, 19, and 7, you know, and I mean, you just know that some of those wins are going to be against Homer Simpsons. And Dan did not discriminate. He didn't care if you'd never stepped in the cage before. He would fight, yeah? But even right after his UFC days, he was fighting guys that were 0 and 6, 1 and 3, people who were just trying the sport for the first time, basically. Yeah, looks like he's going for an Americana here. Key lock. He looks like he's gone. Oh, it's over! He fought Wes Sims and Forrest Griffin in their pro debuts, and he had over 50 fights by that point. If you want to get crazy, look at the end of his career, when he was still beating absolute tins of pineapple. Poor Stephen Eakin. Oh, and oh, who's my first fight? Oh, it's the 89 and 17 Dan Seven. Enjoy. It's also possible that some of the contests in his 135 MMA career were works, but he still stomped plenty of dudes into the recycling bin. Number three, Zviad Lavashvili. Georgia has really put itself on the MMA map in recent years. They've got some top-tier UFC talent. A Georgian fighter you might not have heard, though, is Viad, but I do really have to mention him on this list because his record is almost unbelievable. Zviad's first seven fights took place on the Georgian regional scene, where every single opponent he faced was O and O, all making their debuts, and pretty much all of them got slaughtered. <laughs> By the time he joined the LFA at 11-0, all of his opponents had a grand combined record of just 1-0. That's insane. So, did they give him a tough opponent for his debut? Well, kind of. Josh Huber was 24-10 and and he was on a win streak of his own. He pushed out a decision win and guess what happened next? They gave him a title shot. And at just 12-0, he choked out Ricky Steele in the first round to become the LFA bantamweight champion after crushing more cans than Recyclops. God bless you, Recyclops, and your cold robot heart. So he was invited into the UFC, where he didn't win and has not had a fight since. Number two, Satoko Shinashi. There's a lot of pioneers we talk about on these lists, but one I don't think we've ever actually mentioned is a Japanese multiple-time champion, the princess, Satoko Shinashi. She was fighting in Smack Girl way back in 2002. She got more and more wins and more and more experience, but she kept fighting girls who were just getting into the sport themselves. 
The longer she stayed undefeated, the longer it seemed the promoters wanted to keep her that way, and they just kept giving her people who she was easily going to destroy. When she first fought in deep, she was 14-0, and her first two opponents were making their pro debuts. Get this, okay? By the time she hit 20-0, 15 of her opponents had been girls who were 0-0 or had losing records. She finally fought someone half-decent in Hisei Watanabe, who was 16-4, and she got KO'd in the first round. But Satoko would then compete for another 17 years after that loss and she kept on fighting as many cans as they would give her. She's currently sitting on a record of 39 and 4, which would be really impressive if half of them had never stepped in a ring before. Number one, Travis Fulton. Okay, so if you look into this guy's criminal history, he's definitely one of the worst human beings on the planet. But we couldn't not put him at number one because if you're talking about can crushing, he's basically the garbage man of MMA. Fulton's final record was 257, 55, and 10. That's over 300 fights, and how many of them do you think were against actual MMA fighters? Yeah, not many. Maybe not even half of them. I have absolutely no idea where Travis was getting all these fights booked. In 1998, he had 42 fights, and 28 of those opponents had one fight or less. But that was the early days of his career. He kept fighting any random dude that felt like they wanted a cage fight. By 2006, he had over 200 fights, and he was still taking on people who were making their debuts. Just basically, anyone who could get his hands on, he seemed happy to fight. I've got no idea how much he was getting paid to beat up guys on the regional scenes of Iowa, but probably not as much as a garbage man. I need to thank the editor. Has anyone seen Luke? Yeah, what do you need? Fucking hell. <laughs> Come here. Come here. Come back. Luke, what is your favourite tinned food? Whole can chicken. <laughs> like, it's really fucking bad, but I it's real. <laughs> Yeah, can crushing in MMA, we don't really accept that. I don't know why people do it in boxing, and it's fine. It's, like, supposed to be what happens. But in MMA, we frown upon that shit, and for good reason. Because no one needs to see Dan Seven beating up some random guy who's never fought before. As always as well, you channel champions, I know you're watching. You are the best. Thank you very much for joining down below, hitting the button, supporting the content. We've been able to do a bunch of new stuff recently. Podcast segments, freaking more essays, freaking sandwich tasting that one's not come out yet and it probably won't actually i'm just passionate about me dude <laughs> so thank you for that if you do want to join them and help us make more new content there is a button down below you can click join there's a lot of benefits it's pretty cool just ask them or you know go have a look for yourself if you're new here click subscribe if you don't know how youtube works that means you'll see all of our latest videos and they are very good and you don't want to miss one because you never know when luke's gonna take his shirt off and if you missed that video, I'm sorry. It's already happened. <laughs>